0: Try that again. Good morning. <laughs> oh man, what a great week. Hey, you ever notice in the summer? This is what I love about Southern California in the summertime. Um, you ever put like closed toe shoes on in the summer and realize that feels kind of weird, right? Because you've been wearing sandals all week or just going barefoot? Love it. Um, in fact, we went to the beach this week and um, you know, I recall going to the beach my memories of going to the beach were like a towel and a wetsuit. And then you just buy the car change under the towel and leave the towel in the car. Take one key, slip it in your wetsuit, take the surfboard and go. It's not like that when you have a family. I'm like, seriously, I, this big wagon full of like chairs and tents and who knows what. And I'm like this. I lost weight. Like uh, you know, pulling that through the sand. Oh man. We had fun though. Um, got a great sunburn, and it was awesome. So everybody else got tan. Let's turn to Luke chapter six. Luke chapter six, verse 37. This is a fun one. <laughs> um, Luke 6:37. Let's begin. Judge not. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Press down, shake it together. Running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure that you measure, you use, it it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, Our merciful God, we thank you this morning that you have called us in fellowship with one another here today to gather as your church, as your family. And we thank you for that inheritance that we are promised. Forgive us, Father, of our sins and prepare our hearts to hear from you as we open your word. Provide for us every need and guard us from the enemy who would attempt to distract or to deter us. And Lord, work in us a work of holiness, of righteousness, and of grace this morning. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us as we receive what you have given us to know you by. We give this time over to you and we open our hearts to hear your voice speak to us in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You know, what a, you, you've heard of a meme, right? They didn't have those when I was a kid. They have them now. We all use them. Um, Not all of us, but most of us use them. A meme, it's basically like a little picture or video that makes a statement that people spread around, particularly on social media. Most often, it's a little pithy statement set over a picture that somehow communicates the point they're trying to get across or the mood of the point. Little known fact, since our society is now so advanced, memes are now the number one way in which reliable information is sent and received. I don't know if you knew that or not. I hope you catch the sarcasm in that. (laughs) But since our passage includes the Bible verse that non-believers love to quote to believers, I thought I would look up memes on judging. I figured that that would be fun. I think the first one applies to me most. Don't judge me. I was born to be awesome, not perfect. (laughs) Okay, the next one. This is a cat with glasses on and, and a reading a newspaper, because that's, I guess, what cats like to do. It says, I didn't know you had the authority to judge me. Is Jesus hiring? (laughs) Okay, here's here's Rafiki from The Lion King, all peaceful and tranquil. Keep judging me. I don't care. At least you're leaving others alone who can't handle it. Anyone interested in what Gene Wilder has to say about it? Of course you are, right? Here we go. So you like judging others. Please tell me how perfect you are. Wait, that should be a crying face, not a Gene Wilder face, right? No, I don't. here's another one from him. Uh, so you like to sit and judge people. That must make you feel so much better about yourself. <laughs> here's, here's a good one. Before you judge a man, walk a mile in his shoes. And then someone else is saying, well, after doing that, who cares? I have his shoes and I'm a mile away. Uh, How about some wisdom from the world's most interesting man? Here we go. Well, if you judge me, I'll be sure to judge you for judging me, for judging someone else. Now, you know who knows something about judging? Judge Judy. Right? Judge Judy. Somebody says, I think the government should, before they complete their sentence, Judge Judy is glaring at them, and judges judely. That's, That's... Here's another one from her. I'm not judging you, giving the little loser symbol on the forehead, right? Okay, here, this is somebody that's supposed to be a judgy person, I guess. Says, claims only God can judge you. Judges you constantly. Okay, I don't, I don't know. I love this guy's face. I don't know much about him at all or who he is. But he's saying, I'm not saying I'm judging you, but I'm judging you. SpongeBob SquarePants? <laughs> who loves SpongeBob SquarePants? I'm so non-judgmental. I judge people for judging others. And who doesn't know who Lisa Simpson is? This is the face you make, right? This is the face you make when someone says, don't judge others for flaws right after they judge you for your flaws. Um and finally we have some wisdom on being judgmental from a dinosaur. Because who would know better than a dinosaur. If I say, judge not, lest ye be judge, am I judging someone for judging others? Aren't you blown away by the incredible, profound truth that you have learned and hidden in your hearts from memes? Why do I even need to preach, right? Like we have memes and TikTok, what am I doing here? Actually, I think part of this passage deals with the people that spent their time making some of these memes. Where is that? Oh, verse 39, there it is. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Uh, Judge not is the one command from Christ that even atheists and agnostics believe. And they love quoting it to Christians. They've got a magazine full of that verse, and they have one in the chamber just waiting for a Christian to disagree with their opinions. And sometimes we as Christians deserve to have it fired off at us, right? Right? The problem is that neither they nor presumably most Christians even understand what this passage means in its appropriate context. Nevertheless, it is the world's favorite Bible verse because being judgmental is the cardinal sin of our day. And what's really fun is that we've redefined the word judgmental to mean the same thing as disagreeing with my opinion. Let's, let's, let's dig in a little bit. Uh, Luke 6, verse 37. Keep your finger in Luke 6 all morning. It just starts out, judge not and you will not be judged. Now Jesus has continued to speak in the same sermon that we read from last week. He's just given some very challenging instruction to love your enemies. And he's now speaking of judging others. In this section we see a lot of cause and effect language. Here we see the negative, and then the third part of this verse, he shifts over to a a positive cause and effect. And that term, judge not, is saying more literally, stop judging. Or even more literally than that, stop condemning. It's speaking of condemnatory judgment. We're going to dig into that some more, but uh, because there's so much confusion on what this means, we need to get into the finer details of the text That's what I like doing. Uh, But but even before that, before we go there, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. First off, it doesn't mean that we do away with discernment. Uh, We need to know what is good and evil, and we need to call sin what it is. Sin. This is the truth. We have to make judgment calls every day. When my kids are fighting, and one of them comes crying to me that the other one hit him with one of my tools that they're not allowed to touch... I don't say, I'm sorry, Jesus told me not to judge your brother. Next time, don't take a rake to a shovel fight. You'll lose every time. Like, I don't, no, I deal with it, right? Like, it doesn't mean that we validate or we enable sin in someone else's life. That, that would be to stumble them. We don't want to do that. It, Denise and I, we have people in our lives that we love who, are either not believers or they're not living as believers. They're cohabitating with somebody that they're not married to. Um, and they know that as Christians, we thus believe that is a sinful lifestyle. Um, it, when we lived in New York, we had this huge house that was big enough for overnight guests. We don't have that anymore, so it makes it easy. But back then, we had the, it was a huge house, and we would not have invited an unmarried couple to stay in our house, or at least in the same room in our home, if they were to visit. Um, That would validate and enable that sin, and perhaps would put a stumbling block in their way if they were to come to a place of repentance. Because if we don't take that sin seriously, why would they? Right? They may not know that that's an area that they would need to repent of. But at the same time, we need to also be reminded that Jesus hung on the cross for those sins, right? And, and so there, there's, there's room to be gracious. Doesn't mean that we're not discerning about who we have in our homes or who serves in different areas of ministry in the church or who to trust in other area areas of our lives. You know, just because somebody may be a recipient of God's mercy doesn't necessarily make them qualified to serve in every area so so we need to be discerning this is true like you dads out here you might relate to this do we let our daughters date a guy who looks like he lost a fight with a tackle box right that's it's your call as a parent whether or not to remove those piercings with lineman's pliers right (laughs) these are the things dad thinks about don't judge me right because we're talking about judging don't judge me um i'm just kidding That's not a mantra we use. Um, We we can see people through the lens of God's mercy, and we can still question their integrity if necessary. We can find them guilty in a court of law. We can hire and fire them, uh, or we can choose whether or not we're going to work for them, right? We can make decisions regarding people we do business with, regarding people we allow our children to be around or hang out with, um, we can make decisions based on personal preference. This is how R.C. Sprawl put it. He said, the judgment of discernment, the ethical evaluation is not what was being prohibited here by our Lord, Jesus. He was speaking of a different kind of judgment, the judgment of condemnation. In fact, this is what it says as we continue in verse 37. Judge not and not be judged. Condemn not and you'll not be condemned see, being judgmental in this context is dealing with condemnation. It's more dealing with judging the person rather than the act, even though the actions can often reveal a lot about a person. It's not talking about overlooking sin. Philip Ryken said a judgmental person is someone who reaches unjust conclusions about someone else's motives we see this a lot in politics, right? We're too lazy as a society to actually be like, informed about policy. So we just use ad hominem attacks and besmirch the character of the opposing candidate. And that's how politics is done in America today, right? But years ago, Denise and I, and I think it was, I think it was Rebecca, back when she was like 15 years old, we had a discussion. I may have even been teaching through this very verse. I don't remember, or passage rather. Uh, But we had a discussion about what it means to be judgmental. And so here are some key points that we had come up with. I thought they were profound, and I would share them with you. Uh, Simply judging may not be judgmental. We have to make assessments about people for all kinds of various reasons all the time, right? But then it can also become gossip, or it can uh, become otherwise unnecessary to speak about, and thus it would become judgmental. There, Having an opinion in itself is not judgmental, even if it's on morality or lifestyle or religion. We have a right to opinions on these things, right? And it's, it's so often that Christians are accused of being judgmental because we believe what the Bible says about sin. Like the golden calf of our day is sexual freedom. And if we don't validate things like cohabitating or homosexual activity, pursuing a transgendered or transsex lifestyle, or any other sexual appetites that God has expressed through scriptures are depraved, then we are often considered to be judgmental. That isn't what judgmental means. What is judgmental is to assume that a boy is gay because he likes dolls. What's judgmental is to assume that because a girl hates dresses and likes Hot Wheels, she should live as a boy. That's judgmental. But the Christians, somehow, we're the judgmental ones because we agree with God and science, right? But, but no, we have a right to believe in sin. We have a right to believe in the created order. That's not judgmental, okay? The next one is just because someone disagrees doesn't mean that they are being judgmental you're allowed to disagree we're all allowed to disagree another one judging the action may not be judgmental while judging the heart behind it probably is judgmental right here's one this is just very practical when you speak A you are statement or a he is or she is statement can be judgmental while saying something more like you are acting like or she sounded like might not be quite as judgmental, right? For example, it would be better to say, that sounds kind of selfish rather than you're selfish, right? You see the difference there? Uh, Here's another one. You have to judge somebody in order to call them judgmental. So... There we go. Now, we've all failed miserably in many areas of our lives, and even particularly this one. And so, to condemn someone for their failures is to condemn ourselves uh, or to exclaim that our sin is somehow better than theirs. I don't know why we do that, but we so often do. And it's nothing short of the pride of the Pharisees. And we're going to speak more of the Pharisees uh, coming up in future weeks in Luke. Now, our. Here's a here's something to think about. Our judicial system is a good example that's worth considering. In civil cases, what do you need in order to uh, get a ruling or, or affirm an accusation? A preponderance of the evidence, right? That's what you need. So it's not like 50, it's got to be better than 50-50 chance. It, you, you have to be more certain than just, well, I think he did it, right? In a criminal case, you need to find the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt to get a conviction. That means if there is any reasonable doubt, you cannot convict that person of what he or she is being accused of. But, see, in both cases, the burden of proof is on the one making the accusation. Right? Not on the one defending themselves. It's on the one making the accusation. And I think we need to understand that oftentimes we as Christians have a tendency to do this. We're prone to circumnavigating that principle of the burden of proof. And and we somehow in our minds, if we think somebody's guilty, in our minds, they're guilty. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't don't do that. Perhaps the, the best safeguard against becoming judgmental is to always lean on the principle of giving the benefit of the doubt somebody and when you don't have to judge like when you're not like why judge when you don't have to really like there's a lot of times like i just it's not my place um it always amused me i and i was i was like i'm like historically like the worst at all of this and you know i i feel like i've grown a lot and but I, I feel like I also probably need to grow a whole lot more in this area. But it's always amusing how many Christians I've seen that are just super hyper-vigilant about how everyone else is behaving. And then they sometimes, they start bragging about ways that they've got out of jury duty. Like, why? Why are you trying to get out of jury duty? You love judging, right? That's what you're supposed to do in jury duty is judge. If you like judging so much, go to jury duty. Get it out of your system. Like, Really? You know? Verse 37 continues. It says, judge not, you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. It goes to the positive now. The positive cause and effect. Instead of judging and condemning, forgive. Or be forgiving. How can we say that we are grateful for God's forgiveness if we refuse to be forgiving? We talked about that last week. When I, when I forgive, I relinquish my right to be angry or to hold what I've forgiven against the person that I have forgiven. We don't, we don't understand forgiveness very well in our culture, I think. I, I think what's happening is we we tend to prolong adolescence way too long, and we never really move beyond begrudgingly forgiving people like we did when we were children. But Jesus Jesus is calling us to the kind of forgiveness that God gives because we bear his image. And how can we be image bearers of God if we cannot forgive the way that God forgave? Psalm 103, 8 to 12. This is powerful. Psalm 103, starting in verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, How far would it be if I drew a straight line from east to west? It would never end, would it? You don't, it doesn't suddenly change direction if it's a straight line. It's always going from east to west. That's the forgiveness that we are called to. Let's go to verse 38, Luke 6, 38. It says, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put in your lap. Give and it will be given to you. Jesus is here saying, in fact, go further than forgiveness. Don't just forgive, but bless them also. We talked about that a bit last week. But this principle also translates into practical everyday business. Um, I'm old enough to remember when the Temecula Mall... Promenade Mall was built, and in that mall, I think this, this, this little uh, food place in the food court there um, has been there from the very beginning. The Mongolian Grill, anybody ever been there? The Mongolian Grill there? Okay, I love, this is a place that you take a bowl, I used to love this place. Um, it's a place where you take a bowl, and it's like a buffet line of raw foods, and at the end, you give your bowl to the cook who fries up everything in your bowl, and this big round hot plate thing they used to have lamb, I haven't seen lamb there in a while, so I don't go there quite as often, but it, it, the, the trick, there's a trick to it, right? What, what happens is that the meat is like shaved off of these slabs of frozen meat, and so it curls up real big, and it has these, so you get these curls of meat. So when you put the meat in the bowl, what do you have to do? Anybody done this? What do you have to do? Push it down. You gotta push it down. That's right, you gotta, you gotta push it down because it's mostly air, right? And the trick is you push the meat down as hard as you can and then you fill the bowl almost to the top with meat. And then you can start putting all the vegetables and sauces. You can make it, they have all kinds of, you can make it as spicy as you want. Um, burn your mouth spicy, it's great. But, but if you don't push it down, you, you hardly get any meat. Now, I, I'm not joking here, I went to a similar place and it was in another part of the country. I can't remember if it was in New York, might have been in Utah somewhere, in Salt Lake, somewhere around there. But I don't remember where it was, but it was a similar kind of a Mongolian grill kind of place. And I'm not lying, they had a sign that said not to push the food down in your bowl. It's like, you're going to charge me $9 for half an ounce of frozen meat? I don't think so, Uh, right? Because it, it looks like a lot when you put it in the bowl, but once you cook it and it uncurls and shrinks like bacon, there's hardly anything there. It's like a deceptive measurement, right? Do it that way, and you wouldn't have enough meat if you used like a giant mixing bowl. And, and that's kind of how it would work back in Jesus' day when you would buy a bushel of grain or corn or some other meat product. What you would do is, guys, seriously, you wore dresses too. If you're back in Jesus' day, you're wearing a dress, okay? And they would, I think maybe we'd call it a gown, you know, I don't know. But you would take the bottom, and you would pull it up like this, right? And that would create this big pouch. And what they would do is the bushel of whatever you're getting would be put in there, and you would shake it, right? Good measure, shake, right? Right? running over, uh, pressed down and shaken, you'd shake it together. That's what this is referring to. You'd shake it together, and then whoever's putting this stuff in there would like push it down and everything, because to get an honest measurement, you've got to get the air out, right? And then you'd tie it up and, and you'd walk home with it or whatever, however you held it together. The Old Testament prohibited false weights and measures. Look at this. It says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap." For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. The Old Testament prohibits false weights and measures because they're unjust. And God is just, right? If you remember from last week, the culture was governed by that principle of quid pro quo. One thing in return for another. A measure for a measure. An honest day's work for an honest day's pay. That wasn't a, a bad thing. Till it translated to giving and charity, it virtually eliminated those things. But Jesus is saying here to be honest and even generous in your daily transactions with people. Don't try to have the upper hand. He's saying that his people are generous people. That's a disposition that we have. As we move forward, Jesus begins to use humor now to illustrate his point with a couple of really funny examples. And then there's like a little rhetorical statement in there that defines discipleship. But because we had to translate from Greek to English, and then we're also geographically removed by like the other side of the world, and we're chronologically removed by about 2,000 years, some of the humor employed in Christ's parables might be harder to get. But this shouldn't be. Because slapstick comedy transcends time and space. And this is what Jesus is using here. Think like Larry Curly, Curly, Shep, and Moe, right? This is physical comedy, like the Three Stooges, or like Chris Farley. Physical comedy. We're dealing with physical slapstick comedy. Listen to this. Verse 39, he also told them in a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? I even set you up and you didn't laugh. Come on now. Like we got a Chevy Chase out there on a screen to act it out. Look at the picture of a blind man leading a blind man. Like what if you got Clint and I both up here with blindfolds. You spin us both around and tell me to lead Clint over to his office. Like, what, it, like it wouldn't be funny unless one of us gets a compound fracture. Like, like Jesus is using absurdity here to demonstrate something that's absurd. How can you lead someone to God if you demonstrate by your life that you don't know Him? I love how how agnostics often try to refute the Bible, like Bart Ehrman. An agnostic readily admits that they don't know. They're terrible teachers, right? Come back to me when you know something. And and I notice that a lot of them intentionally leave the blinders on that's a, that's a whole different level of blindness when you have the ability to not be blind right when i, when I was in college as a, as a young adult i had a couple of friends we were all studying to be airline pilots and we were building flight time uh, but we were also dead broke um, and uh, do you know what it takes to get an airplane up in the air money right so, um, but here's the neat th- neat trick that they have uh, that's built in the FARs. You can have two pilots logging pilot and command time if one of them is flying what's called under the hood. So one of them is the visual pilot and the other one is practicing instrument flying by putting on this hood thing. Sometimes it's like glasses or something but it blocks your vision of everything but the instrument panel so it it simulates instrument flying you can't see out the windows and you can log time that way Um, those are intentional blinders you put them on intentionally to limit your ability to see and to observe what's taking place around you how many people remain purposefully blind or ignorant and yet try to lead people in their ignorance in this case jesus is using physical blindness as a metaphor for spiritual blindness in the bible blindness is actually often associated with the power of satan in fact look let's look at paul here in in the book of acts verse 26 this is how he explains his conversion on the road to Damascus, uh, when he's being tried by Herod Agrippa. Um, Acts 26, starting in verse 12. It says, In this connection I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, where are you, Lord? Or who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness. To the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and play, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus and then Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Paul furthermore Um, And Romans 2 illustrates that those who are in darkness, who are being led by the blind, will perish, according to Paul here. Romans 2, verses 17 to 25. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What that means is that when you stand before God, if you have not trusted what He has taught through the Scriptures, you really won't have any excuses. You can tell tell God that the guy on TikTok was really, really convincing, but that's not going to change anything. God has given us the information to remove our blinders and to know Him through his scriptures. If we're to lead anyone to God's righteousness, we need to see. We need to see the perfect truth of God's word. We need to see his majesty and his power. We need to see our own sin and our desperate need for the grace and mercy of God. And we need to see Christ crucified, dead, buried, and risen from the dead. Amen. Amen. And only then will we not be blind so that we can see the Holy Spirit working holiness in us and if we don't see if we don't see we will only lead people to their doom A disciple it says in verse 40 luke 6 40 a disciple is not above his teacher but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher there's a there's a movie out there where the main character who's in kind of this uneducated hillbilly goes to college so that he can play college football. And he goes into this biology class, and the professor asks, is there anyone here who can tell me why most alligators are abnormally aggressive? And the main character replies, mama says that alligators are onery because they got all them teeth, but no toothbrush. (laughs) Of course, we all know that it's because alligators have an enlarged medulla oblongata. Who doesn't know that? Right? The point is there's a reason for the teacher-student relationship. The teacher's supposed to know more, right? Right? You don't reserve you don't reverse that order. Jesus then says that when a student is fully trained, he'll become like the teacher. Now, fully trained means restored or perfectly united. It was a term that was used for mending fishing nets. So Christian discipleship would then imply mending one's ways. And of course, in this context, the immediate meaning has to do with Christ's disciples being the students and Jesus being the teacher or the master. In fact, that's what disciple means. It's one who follows the teachings of another. So Jesus is indicating right here that his desire is that we would be like him. This, this section is supposed to make us laugh. Like it, it's comedy. Picture the three stooges or Hollywood lecturing us on how to be moral, right? Most of the time, we tend to think way too highly of ourselves when we're trying to fix other people's problems. So for the next section, maybe picture the, the two subjects as, let's say, Chris Farley and David Spade, right? Chris Farley, who who doesn't think Chris Farley wasn't a master of physical comedy? He was funny, and that's what this is. It's physical comedy. Let's, Let's read this in verse 41. Read this as physical comedy. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? There we go, thank you, all right, okay? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. Why is it that when we discuss this passage, it's always the other person that has the log in their eye? You, do you realize that's the opposite of what Jesus was getting at? It's not a divinely inspired mantra to ward off your critics with. Take the log out of your own eye! How many of you ever heard that? Right? How many of you ever said it? <laughs> Whoops! Nobody's raising their hand, am I the only one? You're lying! I know this, right? Look at, look at the pot calling the kettle black, right? When you criticize me and I call you a hypocrite in response, now I'm the one being judgmental, right? Then now we're both hypocrites and, you know, I don't know, at least we're even, right? I don't, look, who's Jesus talking to in this passage? Who's Jesus talking to? Is he addressing everybody else or is he speaking to me? Like, what makes me think I'm the one standing next to Jesus like, yeah, guys, don't you notice the beam in your own eye? You tell them, Jesus, high five, fist bump, right? No. (laughs) Like, no, the message is to me. I have the log jutting out of my eye socket. Romans 2.1 says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. David Garland said, the fault is judging others without first judging oneself using the same measuring stick. The order is judge yourself first and then you can help rather than judge another. And that's the key, why are we judging? Before you evaluate someone else, we need to ask ourselves this, why? And if we're not trying to help, we probably need to keep our opinions to ourselves. And if we're trying to help, we need to deal with our problems first. You ever seen seen a muddy kid try to clean off a dusty kid, right? We need to examine our own hearts. We need to repent of our own sins see Jesus explaining how comical we are to God when we're going around judging one another God's up there going "Look, look, look, look at these people imagine a large structural beam sticking out of my eye while I'm trying to pick an eyelash out of Pastor Clint's eye and then imagine me trying to explain why I'm more concerned about the eyelash in Clint's eye while I have a weight-bearing ceiling truss coming out of my eye socket, I'm just I'm just so worried about Clint. Jeff, you have an 8x12 beam where your eyeball used to be. <laughs> According to Jesus, in that scenario, I'm a hypocrite. Before you call someone else a hypocrite, you need to ask, am I one? Well, I mean, Herbert, he just drinks so much. Okay, when's the last time you looked at a porn? Well, is such a gossip. All right. By the way, how'd you make it home so quickly yesterday, by the way? You see, why is it that everybody else's sin, every sin I see in someone else is worse than mine? David Garland sent the hypocrite. Is an inauthentic person who in this case deceives himself more than he deceives others. See, the difference between you and your neighbor is that you can know where your heart is. Can't know where theirs is. Philip Bryken said it's it's tempting to spend less time in private confession of sin than we spend taking or thinking rather and talking, however charitably, about what is wrong with other people. We can often be so concerned over contending for truth and righteousness that we forget to love people. We're so hyper vigilant that grace and mercy get forgotten. Riken compared that to the Tin Woodsman and the Wizard of Oz, who had strong armor but no heart. This is what he says about it. He said, Sadly, the same thing happens in the church today. It happens when we're overconfident in the conclusions we reach about other people's problems without fully knowing their situation. It happens when we judge people's motives wrongly, assuming that we know why they did what they did. It happens when we withhold forgiveness from people who have done us wrong. It happens when we keep our distance from Christians struggling with difficult sins like self pity or sexual immorality. It happens when we shun people with messy problems like poverty and drug addiction. It happens when we use angry slogans to condemn hot and button issues like abortion or the gay lifestyle without befriending people and offering them grace. God, forgive us. This is not the way Jesus taught us to treat people. And when we do, it should not surprise us that they want nothing to do with his gospel. Riken also said all too often the people who render the harshest judgments and make the fewest allowances are people in the church as if we ourselves were not in constant need of saving grace or had never received any undeserved mercy from God. Are we prone to harsh judgment or judgment of charity, which R.C. Sproul calls best case analysis that that involves giving the benefit of the doubt how how good am I at that how good am I at assuming that the other person always has better motives than I do how good uh, am I at assuming the best intentions of the other person and listen there is a place to confront sin we absolutely must but we must uh, confess our own sin first. I mean, we've all, of course, we've had to deal in recent years with whether or not we're okay with mean tweets, right? And I think we can all agree that it's probably not very presidential, but each of us has to decide where we stand on politics and what we're willing to put up with and what we're not willing to put up with and then we have to offer our neighbors the grace to disagree with us. And listen, it's especially true because I'm sorry, guys, I've seen some of your Facebook pages. And I think there are a number of us who don't have a lot of room to criticize mean tweets. Just being honest, suddenly I'm going to have way less friends on Facebook. <laughs> How many of us have ignored mom's advice? Do you remember what mom said? How many of us have ignored mom's advice because we can hide behind our technology and not see see somebody face to face? What did mom say? Every one of us, our moms said the same thing, didn't they? If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Anybody whose mom never said that, right? I don't, I don't care if you're the president or a drywaller. If you can't be nice on social media, get off of social media. Or at least don't tell people you belong to IBC. <laughs> tell them you're a Mormon. Do that. Listen, before I wrap this up, I wanna address something that's a little bit on the other side. I wanna address those of us that might feel judged often in the church by the church or by Christians because we are actually in sin uh, a few things on that first off if you're actually in sin it might not be that you're ju- being judged by the people in the church that might be God through your conscience judging you convicting you of sin and that conviction should lead you to repentance because you need to flee your sins And the second thing I have to say on that is you might be hearing the sermon and thinking, that's right. Only God can judge me. Maybe that's true. At the end of the day, maybe you're right. Only God can judge you. And that should terrify you. Because if you're in sin and you refuse to repent and you refuse to turn from your sin, you cannot be saved. You will not escape the holy wrath of God. He will not overlook your sin. And the only way for your sin to be transferred to the cross and Christ's righteousness transferred to you is by His grace alone through repentance. We're about to take communion. And it's a time... Now that we should all take some time to repent. And maybe it's for some physical, tangible sin that we need to be repenting of. And maybe we need to be repenting of our attitudes, of being judgmental or defensive. But we need to take some time to repent. Because if we understand what we're doing when we partake of the Lord's table, we have no room to be critical of our neighbor if I understand the price that Jesus paid because I sinned, how can I not be so consumed with sorrow and repentance that everyone else's struggles fade into the background? Listen, I'm a desperately sick and wicked sinner. And I'm saved only by the blood of Jesus. It's my sin hung my Lord on the cross. He bore my shame in my place. And see, we're warned not to partake in an unworthy manner. And it's that repentance that makes us worthy. Listen to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 to 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord let a person examine himself and then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself let him examine himself and then eat so examine yourselves and then partake so We're going to take some time to repent and be thankful. I'm going to pray the worship team is going to come up and play some music. And as the elements are being passed out, I want all of us to uh, just reflect and repent and be right before God. Our holy God, we surrender our thoughts and our attitudes to you. God, forgive us for thinking so highly of ourselves that we so often judge others without considering our own sinfulness. Thank you, O God, for cleansing us of the sin that has so entirely, fully corrupted us. God, forgive us of our sins, for we have not loved you with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We judge unrighteously and we fail to see our own sinfulness as we look upon the sins of our neighbors. Lord, cleanse us of our sin and of our pride that we might be made holy. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive your sacred feast that is set before us. God, your son Jesus removed from us the debt of sin and called us to follow him. And it is by your unending grace that the blood of Jesus was poured out on that terrible, horrible, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy feast in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when would given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake together. In the next verse, Paul continues. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the cup. And he continues, For As often as you eat, drink, or eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh God, we proclaim your death. We thank you for your death. That with it, my sin was also killed. That with your death, our shame was buried. And the righteousness of Jesus then applied to us so we cry out, come Lord Jesus. We await your presence with us. We long to serve you faithfully with humility, with gratitude, at whatever cost that would come to us on your terms, in your kingdom, forever. God, we offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise as we enter our week and our mission field and ask your strength in giving the hope and peace that we have been given to those around us. We pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.